Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Hi, I'm food critic Alan Morgan, and I'm excited to tell you about Ray's Shanghai Bistro, located next to Redlands DMV on Lagonia in Redlands. Ray's Shanghai Bistro offers the largest and most delicious array of traditional and original Chinese dishes available in the Inland Empire. Some of my favorite dishes are the house-made pot stickers, the crisp pork spare ribs with garlic, their unique spicy lamb with bamboo, the sweet and tangy deep-fried orange peel beef, mm-mm and the savory basil spicy shrimp, plus lots of vegetarian dishes. Whether you dine in, pick up the food, or have them cater your next party or special occasions, you will see why Ray, spelled R-U-I apostrophe S, Shanghai Bistro, is truly the best Chinese restaurant in the Yulin Empire. Their website is raisshanghaibistro.net. That's raisshanghaibistro.net. R-U-I-S, shanghaibistro.net. Happy eating! You won't be disappointed. Single-family houses and apartments are the key to passive income, a.k.a. retirement. No one knows this better than America's most successful investor, educator, self-made multimillionaire, and CEO of Lifestyles Unlimited, Dell Wamsley. Meet Dell's team live in Mountain View, two days only at the Hyatt-centric Mountain View, Saturday and Sunday, October 21st and 22nd. To attend, register now at GiveMeTotalFreedom.com. That's GiveMeTotalFreedom.com. Limited seating, unlimited potential. Register today at GiveMeTotalFreedom.com. Miss your favorite show? Download the podcast at kcaaradio.com. KCAA. Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, a pleasant afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Water Zone. Now, you are listening to a great show that's going to talk about water. That's what we do every week. And uh, I'm Rob Starr, and my other host is Mr. Chris Davies, who is somebody I totally respect and is one of the most knowledgeable people about hydrological products. And uh, Chris, welcome back from a deserved vacation. How are you doing? You sound awesome. you, you sound and look good. <laughs> All right, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it very much, Rob. It was a great week um, off, that's for sure. Just uh, you know, to give you some hints, there were palm trees, cool breezes, and lots of water, as you just uh, as you just mentioned, on an island state of the U.S. out in the Pacific. So you can guess where I was. I was, but uh, you you didn't go to the one that burnt, did you? <laughs> I did not. It was on the big island of um, of Hawaii, but everywhere there was a. I was just 
uh, I was absolutely just raised up in uh, in honor of all of the efforts on every single island, on every single, whether it's a little souvenir shop or you're buying, you know, fresh guava juice or in the big stores or whatever, everywhere they're raising funds for uh, Maui. And I was really, really impressed uh, uh, That's on, good. Yeah, on the inclusiveness of that. I heard uh, there's a chain of stores, uh, I think it's called ABC Stores. Yes, they're there. Absolutely, yeah. and I heard they're putting they're they're putting on a big a big push to raise money for the people over there, which is awesome. I, I love it, it's really united a bunch of people, and and even though they're pissed off at the government, uh, internally the people are doing a great job by themselves, and I appreciate that. I wish we could get them more help. Yeah. So, and we have the wonderful purveyor of ner- of can't uh, <laughs> even talk right now. Uh, of a Bathers Notebook, Miss Chris Austin, and she's back with us every single week. Chris, how are you doing uh, up in California, way? Hey, we're doing great up here. We had a nice, mild weekend. The weather is beautiful. I, I, this is I, it's really nice up here this time of year. Um, we're just at the nineties, and I think it's going to be nineties all week, pretty much. So things are good up here, and we're all hoping for. Another good wet season, uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Well, the jury's out on that. That's what we hear. We, they're they're predicting that the El Nino of this coming winter is going to be a whopper. Is that uh, – how, how sure are they? Well, you know, <laughs> the, the, we really go back and forth about this El Nino thing. And, you know, when you look at the data spread out, uh, over you know well, however many decades looking back, um, you see that there there isn't really statistically any like El Ninos El Ninos are not consistent uh, whether they're going to be wet or dry. It really depends on you know where the jet stream lands, and that's kind of a you know uh, that's always kind of a crapshoot. You know if it's going to send all the storms north or or south and sometimes it's texas that gets hit um you know so they never really know but we're always trying to figure that out now aren't we um and there have been some some people have been suggesting that they think it's going to mean a, a wet year for california another wet year um again we don't really know we really have you know we would really like to be able to forecast out uh, seasons, you know, be able to look now and say winter will be wet or dry, but uh, we just have no reliability, reliable forecasting that we can do past seven to ten days. And okay. there are some now that are just saying um, it, we never will get there. We'll never be able to do it. There are just too many factors. Um, I think last year uh, the the long term seasonal forecasting uh, people that are trying to figure this out uh, basically said equal chances whether it would be a wet or dry year, and it turned out to be a tremendously wet year. And you know that I think really got folks just kind of coming to grips with the fact. That um, that we're just not going to be able to do that. Probably, um, it's just not 
not likely. So, so how, you know, so we'll so see. How, 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 does, how does the, law, uh, the lawyers, legislation and all of that, what, what do they think they need to do? Do they need to plan for the extreme? And do they plan for the always the extreme kind of condition? Or are they just kind of be moderate until something major happens and then they kind of look, maybe we'll, we'll fix it a little more? How, how does that really work with them? Well, you know, the agencies, the people that are running the system, um, they have to be looking forward. They have to be kind of planning for things. And, uh, you know, there's actually been a lot of focus on this because uh, with climate change happening now and things are changing uh very dramatically here in California. And a few years ago, when we had a little bit of snow up in the mountains, and uh, they, the forecasters looked at it, and they said, okay, we think this amount of water is going to show up in the reservoirs, and then it didn't show up at all. And that really had folks scrambling there. And the big difference is it's the increase in temperatures. And I think that the models that folks have been using did not accurately capture the effect of temperature on the environment, um, probably because there's not a lot of data. These hot temperatures and hot droughts are, are new. Uh, relatively new in the past couple, you know, past couple years. Um, so there, you know, there's been a lot of work and, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion on how do you plan for these types of events. And, I mean, the, the trick is with infrastructure is you have to figure out how much risk you can afford to take because, you can't say you have a stormwater system. You can't size that stormwater system for the maximum amount of stormwater you think you may ever receive. Because if you do that, you're going to eat up a lot of land and it's going to be very expensive and it may not get any very much use and that big storm may never come. Therefore, you know, you've spent a lot of money, and, it's, and there's no payoff for that. We can't, we can't engineer 100% total reliability of everything in the environment. There's always going to be some relative level of risk. And so when it comes to planning, though, the other thing is that these extreme weather events that we've experienced in, say, the last five years, are um, are new and beyond any scenarios that anyone ever had to plan for before. So there's there's some a need for planners to kind of look ahead and kind of look at different uh, events, different possible events. So scenario planning is getting a, a lot of talk, especially at the Delta Stewardship Council. Um, they've been running a webinar series called Decision Making Under Deep Uncertainty, um, which is, you know, we have a thing that sometimes we refer to in California water as analysis paralysis. It's like people 
don't want to make a decision and they just keep ordering more studies, more studies, and they just kind of feel like they never have enough information to make that decision. But in the way, the world that we're living in now, things are changing and they're changing kind of rapidly. And I don't think uh, decision makers have the luxury to sit around and keep ordering up studies. So they have to find a way to move forward and make decisions. And so that's what this webinar series is on, is the decision-making under deep uncertainty. There's a, a book out there. This is something that's been talked about in, you know, higher levels of government as, you know, finding a way to address things and make decisions and move forward even when you don't have all the information. And if that sounds like it's interesting to you, then there is a uh, uh, next week there's the the webinar I think it's the third one or the fourth one in the series uh, is on next Thursday if any anyone is interested in that then you should send me an email and I'll send you the link okay and that kind of brings up this one I guess a follow-up thing so you know the risk the risk is always a factor in everything just like the the bullet train that they're talking about in California for the last 15 years that you know, uh, and and it, I, I don't know if people are biased in, in, in that sense as they are with, with the water conditions because people who, who planned, planned the train said, hey, this is going to be great. It's going to move all these people and stuff like that. Then you got the other side say, well, if there's not enough people going to ride. It's going to be way more cost than it was. And we've spent billions on that. So I, I, do you think the people who put these things together are biased on some side? Maybe some are really big on climate change. Maybe some are not. Do you feel like it's influenced at all in, in any of these studies? Um, you know, I think that here in California, in terms of planning, um, the people that are planning, where they're very well aware of climate change. They, I mean, these conditions are happening here. They're playing out in front of us. Right. And these these situations that we find, that we're finding ourselves in climatically with the temperatures and the deep droughts and stuff is is stuff that was projected to occur at like say 2040 and now here we are in 2024 these things are happening so you can say oh those climate projections were wrong and well yeah okay they were wrong they just happened to be they weren't bad enough <laughs> they didn't say it was coming soon enough uh, yeah. We know that we know these things are happening there, and you know that this is also um, ha the other people that know that this is happening are the insurance agencies, the people oh, yeah. that you know have to insure uh, uh, your homes. Uh, so you know, so yeah, the, I I can't remember what the, the what the original question was, but yeah. There's there's definitely movement to to address these things and you know planning for these extreme events or or being ready to respond. I don't think it's that you plan for them, but you need to kind of have an idea how you how you would respond. And the other the other thing that we have here in California, which we have I believe everywhere, is you have multiple agencies with overlapping responsibilities in times of an emergency. 
So tabletop exercises are, are actually a really good way where you get everybody, the decision makers from whatever agency would, you know, would be involved in something, and then you work through um, right there on the table an event. Say this happens, what do you do? And you work through with all these different agencies of people start working out how they would respond to this. And this is really an important way to coordinate responses because as we've seen in a lot of natural disasters, you get uh, agencies running at cross purposes and a lot of chaos. So the more you can get agencies and people ahead of time to sit down and figure out what they would do and work it through, the better, the better off you are. Oh, great, great, great facts. Yeah. Great points yeah. on that. Mr. Davey, go ahead and jump on yeah. in. I, I didn't mean to take some of your questions, but go ahead. So, uh, on the subject, I really just have one question, and I, I assume Chris was talking about the article. It was, on, it was on the notebook, but it's from the San Diego Union Tribune, right? That's the one we're talking about, because I found, I just, I just thought, you know, some of the things that the, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name, uh, either that was interviewed, but, you know, he's just talking about the number of events and the velocity at which the events are coming at us these days, right? It's, it's even astounding the experts and the pundits, right away, by the way. And you can tell it's astounding the pundits because there's a lack of pundits <laughs> responding to this. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's astounding them. So, but I mean, you know, this, just what, after reading the article, it led me to a question. And, you know, has this kind of, has this been really unexpected unpreparedness on, on uh, not just part of the state of, of California, but, you know, all the agencies that are involved in monitoring, looking and planning and preparing for climate change. I don't know if you agree with that or not, Chris, but it seems that, you know, it's not directly out of like punch from out in left field, but certainly seems to be somewhat unexpected and has led to some level of unpreparedness. Would you agree? Um, I think on some level, certainly here in California, but I think we're more ahead of the game perhaps than in other areas. Um you know, we've been, Cal, I mean, California's hydrology is, is the most variable in the nation. If I could, if I could sh put up this picture, there's this chart that we have that we show all the time, which, which is uh, the standard deviation from the average precipitation Meaning, you know, you have an average precipitation. Is that area of the country, how how wetter than average does it get? How drier than dry does it get? There's sort of a range there. And when you look back east, that range is very small, meaning that they get the, uh, uh, pretty much about the same amount of precipitation, give or take a couple inches every year. And then as you move to the Midwest, there's a little more variation. And once you get out to the West Coast, you get to California, all the colors are, are more extreme. And, and uh, they go from, like, pink is very little to yellow to blue and green and purple. That's very high. And California is all blue, green, and purple. Uh, you know, and the rest of the nation is not. So... Our precipitation pattern has always been highly, highly variable. So we are prepared to a certain extent for droughts and for wet years and for flooding. We were not exactly prepared for 
so much water. Although actually this year I think we did pretty good. Um, and we had uh, you know all this precipitation, and we did not really have any major flooding event. Uh, so that's like the best thing. Um, but you know there are other aspects of well, I should say the people in the Pajaro Valley in the Central Coast. There were there were some levee breaks, so I, I don't mean to minimize that. But overall, um, the the system held up pretty good. Um, but so and and we're ready for that. We're aware of that here. Um, it's just the we need to now start being more prepared for lots of wetter years and deeper droughts. Um, and we've been actually, I think the response in our drought years was actually pretty good, much better than it was back in 2014 and 2015. So, you know, as these events keep hitting us, we're, we are improving. Well, as we, you know, as we look at risk and variability and all this kind of stuff, another interesting article published today on the, um, on the notebook was the new water conservation rules that, that are coming out. And I, and I know we got some time, Chris, and maybe I'm a little early in asking this question because, you know, these are conservation rules that won't go into effect for several or, you know, half, you know kind of half a decade kind of a way uh, uh, in terms of that. But I was just kind of just skipping through it, and I'm going to be honest, I didn't read every, every word in there, but it seems very, uh, you know, very interesting to be looking at something like this way out, but I guess we need to be prepared, right? So can you, can you give us kind of a summary of what those um, new conservation uh, rules would look like or do look like? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. I think, you know, this these new regulations are a result of uh, legislation passed by Governor Jerry Brown um, back in, I believe, in the middle of that drought, probably 2016, I believe, but don't, I'm not sure of that. But anyways, this comes from Governor Brown's administration. And during that drought, 24-2015, they, you know, issued various levels of cuts to agencies and uh, water agencies. And there, there was a lot of debate and a lot of pushback because, you know, some of the agencies these were saying, look, why are you cutting me this much? I have made all these investments. Uh, our our ratepayers had made these investments. We have the water here. Why are you? Why must we cut that? And uh, you know, and a lot of good arguments uh, for why certain water districts shouldn't have to cut back as much as others. And so the point of these regulations is that is that rather than Telling people or, or telling the water districts how much water they have to cut, uh, everyone's going to be set out on a conservative level, right? You know, we're gonna you're gonna not waste water and you're gonna use your water efficiently. And then these water agencies would have uh, drought contingency plans. So rather than saying, okay, everybody, you know cut everybody has to cut 20 percent or whatever the state would would say instead okay it's time for you to activate your level one drought contingency plan um and so that's sort of the direction that they're trying to move uh because in these regulations 
and these are the ones where sometimes they get distorted and sort of like, you know, you can't do laundry and shower on the same day or you'll get a fine. And that's not what this is about. Um, and it's on the onus is on the water agency to, you know, to get the water conservation down to these levels, but it's not going to result in individual fines. Um, but they consist of an indoor uh, standard and an outdoor standard, and they've done a satellite flyover of all these different, all the different urban areas in California, and they've mapped out the um, down to the vegetation level on each property. So your home is is in this, um, and they have come up with. An, an indoor standard and an outdoor efficiency standard. And then you put that together and then you have a water budget for that agency. And then they can get credit for things like if they are recycling water or, you know, if they have groundwater resources and all these things are sort of factored in to this uh, conservation regulations and that, so that's kind of what they're driving towards. And, you know, they want people to become more efficient with their water use, and, and they're putting it on the water agencies to make that happen, I, which they're not I, happy about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will okay. say that. Yeah, there's yeah, always a lot of controversy, Chris. I know, I, you know, I know we can't get away with it uh, as, as uh, easy as we think we can, but Chris, I'll tell you, for, for our session coming up next month in, in October, just want to tell the listeners and, and Rob maybe that, you know, we should, we should, uh, I've always wanted to talk about, uh, do a whole segment on all the, the progress that we're making on the dam project in California, right? We had, that would make a damn good segment. D-A-M. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of good information about what's happening with several, several dams, whether they go build them up or, or do things like that. So that would be a great, a great way to go. Well, Chris, we got to turn it over to our commercials at this point, but I'll give you a commercial for you because you are a special person who does awesome work with Maven's Notebook. Uh, for anybody listening, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber. Get all the latest in California water news up to date every single morning on your computer, laptop, or whatever whatever you, you get your data on. Uh, something that like, uh, Chris Davy and I uh, check every first thing when we pop up our computers in the morning. That's what's on there. We appreciate that. And also, you can become a subscriber to that and, and a sponsor, as I said. Uh, uh, just, again, go to www.mavensnotebook.com. It's it's a great read. You learn more stuff from Miss Chris than you do from a newspaper or anyplace else. I don't know how she does it. Uh, I don't know if she even sleeps at night. I, I can't imagine publishing that much data every single day, but she does it. She's an awesome lady so and a good friend. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us this week. I, I know you'll be back with us every week, next, including next week, because that's part of the future. And uh, you have a good rest of the rest of the week. All right. I'm, good evening, everyone. Yeah, I'm a little giddy because everybody's back from their vacations and stuff, and we haven't seen each other, and it's uh, good to talk to everybody. Kind of thing. So we're going to take a little break. We have a featured guest coming up, and... Uh, uh, it's interesting topics of uh, what we're going to talk about. So stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes. KCAA Loma Linda. 
The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete streamlined system to meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. We want our listeners to get up to speed on what you've been doing since the last time. So welcome back again. And in the interest of uh, any of our new audience out there uh, for this broadcast, maybe we can start off if you'll do just a quick summary, a bio with you, about you, if you would, please. Is, uh, is that all right? Oh, certainly. No, that'll be just fine. It's good to be back with you guys. It's been a while. It has indeed. So uh, I know a lot, a lot of what you've been doing since, and and I know the topic that we're going to talk about, and it's got a very, 
it's got a very very interesting uh, a name to it, right? So uh, we'll call we'll call that uh, in a little bit. But tell our our listeners a little bit about your background because I think we've got some sure. brand new listeners that weren't here last time, and uh, maybe they want to know a little bit about you, Ed. Sure. So basically, started off in horticulture back in the late seventies, and uh, was a contractor in San Diego for oh about twelve years before I relocated up into the Rocky Mountains and Salt Lake. And I've been in Salt Lake now uh, for almost 30, you know, probably 30 years, and got into distribution and selling golf and doing a lot of golf projects and then moving on to larger projects and spent a lot of time with engineers and specifiers, designers. So, you know, I just have a, a kind of a wide reach when it comes to practical experience and, and application and uh, uh, working with the design folks that are out there as well. And then I spent a little bit of time um, helping a company, you might have heard of it, Baseline, get started where we where were specializing in bringing two-wire back. We thought it was important to do that because we were pushing soil moisture sensor technology at the time. And we think that, again, because of what you know, Ms. Austin was saying, uh, you know, water is, is, is obviously something that we're very uh, interested, very close to us. And we find that uh, using soil moisture sensors and two-wire uh, controllers is, is a good way to try to manage some of that in the landscape. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, so, uh, yeah, Rob Starr and I might know a little bit about baseline <laughs> over the years <laughs> along with our day job, right? <laughs> so, listen, yeah. um, you know, the 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 title, I guess, of this uh, segment that uh, that you're going to tell us about, and I'll let you get started in just a minute, it's called The Fourth Phase of Water. So very interested in getting your take on it because I've read uh, I've read the the uh, Jerry Pollack uh, paper on that. I'm interested to, to hear uh, your side of it and have you explain it to our guests, but just give them just a little bit more background because the last time you were here, we are having a chat really about, you know, just, just the basic the basics or the value of introducing strong magnetic fields in an, uh, in an irrigation system by using a passive device, right, and how that influences the water's physical structure. So, um, you know, there's a lot of words there, but, you know, into the, to the common man, what does that mean in, in plain English? Yeah, the last couple of times we were together, you know, I shared what we were uh, doing with um, magnetically influenced water, right, so magnetically Tide water and how the the magnetic field has um, a force on the water that changes it and puts it into a couple different uh, positions. One of them is restructured, and that restructured water is um, a little bit more fluid, and at the same time can be a higher density. So in irrigation, we see improvements. We see better flow. We see better distribution. Um, we'll also see an infiltration rate uh, go up. We'll see permeation compaction go away. So what we notice when we would uh, influence the water with a strong magnetic field is that that water behaved differently, and it ha- behaved in a benefit for irrigation and for landscape. So we, the last 10 years, have been doing all sorts of different trials and university studies and soil analysis, and everything's been extremely positive when it comes to the outcomes and the benefits that we were seeing. 
And for for the water people in landscape, we were seeing an average of 20 plus percent on water reduction. Even if you felt that you were a good water manager and you were watering the ET, let's say you had a park and you were watering the ET, we could bring that water use down 20, 25, 30 percent or 70 percent of ET and even drive that water use lower because of the structure of the water. So we don't want to get into that, but what we started to see in some of the questions that we started to have was, okay, how is that water doing it? What exactly is happening? And we started to do a little homework, and strangely enough, I was at a conference, did a presentation on the magnetic water, and a young lady came up to me and said, hey, uh, Mr. Matthew is this tied to the fourth phase of water. And I really didn't understand what she was talking about. And I said, no, but let me write that down and I'll look into it. So (laughs) a year later, when I actually had some time, I looked into it and it was fascinated that what Dr. Pollock, the fourth phase of water, is explains that outside of vapor and liquid and solid, there's another phase. And that phase is more gel. And that phase is more close to how ice is structured. So that water is negatively charged, and that negatively charged helps the water get in the ground because the ground is negatively charged. The pipe in the system is also negatively charged in most cases, and that helps build what they call an exclusion zone in the irrigation. And this exclusion zone water, or EZ water, is basically easier for plants to take in. And they are able to take nutrients, and we've seen a, a robust um, change in yield. So agriculture um, is improved, um, reduction in water, as I mentioned. And the other thing that's really important here when we change the water uh, structure is reduction in energy. So if you're on a pumping system and you're pumping water and you run it through a magnetic field, strong, specially oriented magnetic field, that you will see your pumping costs go down, I would say minimum, the average that we've been able to record is 30%. And if you're on energy reduction, in energy reduction, yeah, to be clear. So you start cutting back your water by 50, and you start cutting your power back by 30, that's a 50% reduction that some of these sites have been seeing. And if you're a golf course or a large operator, you've got sports fields or uh, something along that line, even agriculture, if you've got these big pumps out there, you can really see a big reduction in cost, not only with the water, but the uh, power saving. Um, yeah, so it's pretty impressive. So when you, if you look so at it from just, an overall... It, go ahead, Rob, your, your turn. Oh, no, go ahead, finish your question, then I'll ask one. Okay, I was just going to ask, right, so I wanted to just tag onto that a little bit, Ed, and ask you, you know, from a from a irrigation, from a, a, a system efficiency standpoint, right? I mean, the, the overall irrigation system, all the things that you talked about in the uh, you know, the, the density and additional density and, and the performance 
um, it's it's got to it's got to almost benefit the the whole system efficiency in a lot of ways, not just the irrigation, but the soil that it's in there, and and just just how you put systems together in the future. Am I am I getting off the marker, or or is it is it that uh, oh. impressive of a? Yeah, so the technology can be scaled from very small residential all the way up to very large. Okay, you know, you know, thirty-six, uh, you know, forty-eight-inch pipes if you needed it to. And and the beauty of this also is I'm working with an engineer in, in uh, Idaho right now that's trying to do a complete uh, new uh, city sort of on one source of water, one well water source. So we're able to run the water out and then bring it back through. Uh, magnetically influenced, you no know, softeners. Then we bring it back. It goes through a quick little exchange and put it back out for irrigation water, magnetize it again, and now we're able to keep the soil healthy. So there's a lot that can be done, learned, and expanded on with with this technology. But from an irrigation efficiency standpoint, absolutely. We see DUs go up just the second you put the magnet in place. Uh, anywhere from six to twelve percent. Yeah. Well, question, questions I have. Um, in some works that I've done with some universities, we've been in a lot of discussions about this, and, and I think, Ed, you know from my past, I'm really into into what your product does and so forth. But from what from what I've learned on others or similar circumstances, that the ground has a certain amount of magnetism uh, density. And and also, if you see a lot of you know people wonder, gee, there's a tree farm over uh, by this empty property, but it's got a lot of power lines above it. And so the question the question comes: so how do you define the intensity level when we say the word strong magnet magnets? What does that have to be, and how's that compared to what's already into in the ground? And then versus or including. Uh, power lines, for example, that may be over a growing area, which also can help stimulate the growth. How does how does that play, or is that something that you guys consider or don't consider, or you have a better way of doing all of this? I don't. I don't think that we've been in a situation yet where we've had any outside influence from another source, like like an energy source, come come to us and become a problem. We know that in our case, you know. We get a lot of questions around magnetic water um, um, uh, flow meters. You know, uh, do we affect those? And the answer is no. We don't have that kind of, you know, we don't need a whole room to put the magnet, you know, in or anything like that. So the magnet's the size of a, you know, two-inch magnet would be the size of a two-inch coupling. You know, a six-inch magnet would be a six-inch phalange with some probes that are going in inserted inside uh, the pipe, so there's no maintenance. It's passive, as Chris said. Um, uh, there's just nothing to learn, so it's not even really a disruptor. It's a game changer because of the results that we're seeing. But it, it, you don't have to learn anything. And like I mentioned, it makes ET the concept of ET evapotranspiration even better, more productive, and that's amazing. Uh, I, the results we're seeing is, is, is crazy. Does it does it matter on the in, in the the Gaussian uh, 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 standards of what the magnet is? 
you know, you can say it's yeah. a six inch magnet, but how much? When you're looking at strength, there are requirements. And we set requirements as much as, you know, there's a high and a low. And I and I, I don't want to say go too far on, on where that is um, because of the and I, don't, I don't want you And I don't want you to tell us secrets about your product, but I was just, it was just, <laughs> but, you know. No, no. Shoes is, is important and, and um, then arrangement and how often um, we're able to, you know, to change over and, and kind of just swap the, and then at the same time um, send out uh, a, a restructured, potentially restructured molecule because this easy water that I'm explaining is something that forms on the side of a hydrophilic surface, like a negatively charged CDC pipe. And Dr. Pollock, we've been communicating and collaborating on certain things. He has tested the magnet, and he's come back with a study that said, yes, that the magnet field induces the easy or exclusion zone water in water itself. And it's taking, you know, liquid water, H2O, and turning it into an H3O2. So it's still all there, but it's in a different configuration. And right. it builds along these, you know, negatively charged vessels. And it's the same with plants, and it's the same with your body. So H2O or H3O2 water is the water that's in plants, and it's the water that's in your body. So you hydrate with this water better uh, as, like, plants. And similar to photosynthesis that we see, because it's a natural occurring movement of water through the plant, the magnet acts like the sun and creates the same sort of energy source that then helps build the potential for the easy or the exclusion zone water, which is what the fourth phase of water is, this gel. You know, I guess, you know, I'm going to ask you this question because, you know, we've been talking a lot about synthesis to water, light and carbon dioxide. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Fifth person on there, Rob? <laughs> no, I had somebody H call it on the line. The, the, the line was going from uh, the phone Yeah, line. So that's why I thought I punched in on there. So, Ed, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, really just the physical science side of it, right, and the application benefits. And I, I know there's, I know there's got to be, some benefits on the biological side as well, right? So, how, how does it kind of, how does it uh, interact, or how does it help with, um, you know, soil characteristics? For, for example, um, infiltration, as you mentioned earlier, and soil water holding capacity. You mentioned that, but what about plant health? And you know, does it help optimize growth? Uh, those kind of things. Is there is there a correlation you can tell our listeners about? Well, the Going back to the photosynthesis and, you know, what makes a strong plant and how do we move nutrients through the plant and what's naturally occurring, we're inducing that and sort of putting the water on steroids so that that photosynthesis action is actually greater. And we see an improvement in growth. We see uh, blooms. We see an improvement more color. One reason we'll end up with more yields on strawberries or maybe soybean or uh, not so much corn.
corn, but alfalfa is another one that really does well under this uh, type of of, um, of application or newer technology. And again, this has been around for a really long time, and it's a very big technology overseas. And most of the studies that we've been able to find that we could get our hands on are from China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Israel. And most of the tech product that's still being sold here, being manufactured in California and sold, is going overseas, uh, more so than it is here in the States. So um, it's something that's been around. And getting back to your question, soil health, we've seen a tremendous change in soil chemistry. We've seen where we've opened the soil. And the last study that came from an eight-year study from an independent soil scientist out of Idaho made the statement that essentially what the treatment is doing is moving the chemistry in such a way that the soil is creating its own gypsum, which explains then why we're doing, why we're able to open up field soil, cap soil, heavy alkaline soil, that type of thing. You know, disbursement uh, of soil becomes a problem and people can't see it, but that's one reason water doesn't go in and we get so much runoff is because we end up with with capped or soil, uh, capped or sealed soil, and we overcome that just by adding the magnet to it, the natural um, uh, rare earth permanent magnet. I, I understand that um, there's been some other tests done where uh, it, it helps. For example, if you installed it in your house, in a house system, on the water coming in, it does a couple things that. Uh, helps out, like gets rid of a lot of the calcium and things, but it also can affect the taste of things, of the, of the, of the water, because you're changing the molecular structure to a certain degree. And how does that play with, with agriculture? Because that would probably benefit them to have a better water, you know, I'll say taste, for example. I, you know, I, I don't know how plants would, would taste, but what goes into them, how how, how systems that are being trying to be developed and, 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 and commercialized? Well, overall, I would just say that the plant's healthier. You know, it's greener. It's going to have more nutrient in it. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a better tomato. It may be a better ear of corn, uh, quality-wise. Um, so can, the can end people result... Put, I was going to say, can Go people ahead. put the system onto their homes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a great backyard garden. Um, drip systems uh, keep some, like you mentioned, uh, calcification, descaling. The, the technology was originally developed out of Cal Poly Pomona back in the 60s and 70s. And even the, the government uh, got involved a little bit and was doing some bigger studies with it. And, you know, we're, just really quickly, we are moving on with studies with NRCS and the USDA and, and things of that nature. But at a low, lower scale, we can put these on three-quarter inch lines, one-inch lines. They can be cut into a PVC line. They'd be clamped onto a PVC line. Um, there's there's a host of ways that uh, people can do it. But initially, it was designed to descale, and that means basically put the calcium back in solution. So the right. question was, can we do that with alkaline soil? You know, can, we, can we open up soil by descaling 
you know, utilizing this water in this new form? And the answer was, yeah, we can. And it's, we're quite successful in doing it. So every home, essentially, like a backflow preventer, I see eventually will have uh, a unit and, and it'll deliver better quality water to the landscape. And then generally, everybody will use at least 20% less. That's pretty awesome. Does, does the magnetism of the product, does it create a different a differentiation in temperature? Does it sort of heat heat the water to, I mean, a small, you know, it's not going to boiling thing, but I mean, does it change the temperature? I've, I've seen some tests that people have run with wine or other things or even with water uh, in a glass of water and they process it with a, with a magnet when they didn't. And the one that went through the magnet process, not your product, but just the general for some university sure. tests, sure. they, they be, it became warmer in a sense. You know, not, not 10 degrees or 20 degrees, but, you know, maybe one, one degree or whatever. There was a difference in that. Does that, does that matter? Is that, is that an effect? Obviously, I, I, it's an effect of what the magnetized uh, water is, is doing because it's changing the structure, the molecular structure of that. So there's some heat, heat rise in, in that. Um, do you see that as something that uh, there's more that can be done with that? When it, comes to irrigation, you know, when it comes to irrigation and growing things and being efficient, I, I don't see that being a, a real factor. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. when we get into the municipal markets, we're playing, doing some work with uh, cooling uh, towers and, and, and uh, some other um, you know, industries like that. It may, I know that the magnetically treated water will boil quicker, so you're saving mm-hmm. a little bit on energy there. And then going back to your past segment that I wish I would have sat in on wine, if you were to pass red wine uh, through uh, the magnet, uh, you would notice uh, it would change and flatten out the taste. It'd be smoother. It'd be a lot smoother. Yeah. So any anything that you would do, the downside of it is the alcohol becomes more available and you have to drink less. Yeah. Well, you drink fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is a chemical change in temperature and water. You know, one of the things that we don't and haven't done is we have not really studied water in this country as well as we should. And the science of water has not progressed much. And that's one reason, you know, guys like me are out pushing this. And, and why isn't it? And I get the question all the time. Why isn't the industry already engaged? Is this so great? Well, partly because water is everywhere, and, and the industry hasn't really caught on to the fact that it's important for us to be efficient, but the science hasn't changed, so there's nobody really knocking on any doors, and, you know, we rely on older wisdom, you know, and, and, and we avoid disruption. So fear comes into play when, it, when guys, and and from the, you know, words of Ted Lasso, you know, bring your... Bring your curiosity and and that's what <laughs> i need to do so more, yeah, we need more people how, how, yeah, how can people find out more about your product where, uh, where can so, they go uh, to check it out yeah website is www.odc-solutions.com or they can send an email to me at edward at overlanddistributing.com Great, great. I think that'll be great for our uh, listeners to check in, especially on the ag side. I think it's a great product. Um, 
I wish you guys a whole lot of success. I know you've been doing it for a while and you've been doing really well. And I'm glad you came back and answered some more questions and give us an update on what's going on. I know Chris and I like the subject. That's something close to our hearts on it. Right, Chris? Thanks. Absolutely. It's been, uh, you know, it's been an effort to try and get you back on it. And I'm, I'm glad you find uh, you found the time to do that. Um, I'll let you know, though, I got a couple of questions. I'm, I monitor the message boards as we're going right here. We, I wish we had more time because we got about 40 seconds left before uh, <laughs> NBC politely tells us it, it's their news hour. But um, still a lot more questions to go. Yeah, get time. the heck off so here. You come back on. Okay, very yes. good. I'd love to. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Have a good one. All right, Thank to our listeners, thanks, care, for, thanks for listening into the Water Zone show this week. I hope it gives you a little bit more knowledge about uh, about water. When you know people don't really think about it because you take a bath in it, you shower in it, you drink it, uh, you wash your dishes and clothes. But there's a lot more science to water, so it's good to, good to learn a little bit more. So we thank you very much. Remember to join us next week. And the most important thing that Chris and I always tell you every week is to please help Help. keep our planet blue. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.